Chapter Four of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four Everyone's Opinion of Everyone Else. In this way, almost from the first, several distinct lines of cleavage were established in the family party during the next fortnight. Arnold imperiously demanded a complete vacation from lessons, and when it was indolently granted, he spent it incessantly with Judith, the two being always out of doors and usually joyously concocting what in any but the easy-going rustic plainness of the Marshall mode of life would have been called mischief. Mrs. Marshall, aided by the others in turn, toiled vigorously between the long rows of vegetables and a little open shack nearby where on a superannuated but still serviceable cook-stove she put up for winter use an endless supply of the golden abundance which series-like she poured out every year from the horn of plenty of her garden sylvia in a state of hypnotized enchantment dogged her aunt victoria's graceful footsteps and still more graceful leisurely halts lawrence bustled about on his own mysterious business in a solitary and apparently exciting world of his own which was anywhere but in la chance and professor marshall in the intervals of committee work at the university now about to open alternated between helping his wife playing a great deal of very noisy and very brilliant music on the piano and conversing in an unpleasant voice with his sister mr rawlins for whom naturally arnold's revolt meant unwanted freedom was for the most part invisible seeing the sights of la chance i suppose conjectured aunt victoria indifferently in her deliciously modulated voice when asked what had become of the sandy-haired tutor and because in this intense retirement and rustication of this period mrs marshall smith needed little attention paid to her toilets Pauline also was apparently enjoying an unusual vacation. A short time after making the conjecture about her stepson's tutor, Aunt Victoria had added the suggestion, level-browed and serene as always, perhaps he and Pauline are seeing the sights together. Sylvia, curled on a little stool at her aunt's feet, turned an artless, inquiring face up to her. What are the sights of La Chance? auntie she asked her father who was sitting at the piano his long fingers raised as though about to play whirled about and cut in quickly with an unintelligible answer your aunt victoria refers to non-existent phenomena my dear in order to bring home to us the uncouth provinciality in which we live aunt victoria leaning back exquisitely passive in one of the big shabby armchairs raised a protesting hand my dear elliot you don't do your chosen abiding place justice there is the new courthouse nobody can deny that that is a sight i spent a long time the other day contemplating it that and the masonic building are a pair of sights i conceive rollins who professes to be interested in architecture as constantly vibrating between the two to which handsome tribute to la chance's highlights professor marshall returned with bitterness good lord vic why do you come then she answered pleasantly 
I might ask in my turn why you stay, she went on. I might also remind you that you and your children are the only human ties I have. She slipped a soft arm about Sylvia as she spoke, and turned the vivid, flower-like little face to be kissed. When Aunt Victoria kissed her, Sylvia always felt that she had, like Diana in the storybook, stooped radiant from a shining cloud. There was a pause in the conversation. Professor Marshall faced the piano again, and precipitated himself headlong into the diabolic accelerandos of the Hall of the Mountain King. His sister listened with extreme and admiring appreciation of his talent. "'Upon my word, Elliot,' she said heartily, "'under the circumstances it's incredible, but it's true. Your touch positively improves.' He stopped short, and addressed the air above the piano with passionate conviction. I stay because, thanks to my wife, I've savored here fourteen years of more complete reconciliation with life. I've been vouchsafed more usefulness. I've discovered more substantial reasons for existing than I ever dreamed possible in the old life, than anyone in that world can conceive. Aunt Victoria looked down at her beautiful hands clasped in her lap. Yes, quite so, she breathed. Anyone who knows you well must agree that whatever you are, or do, or find nowadays, is certainly thanks to your wife. Her brother flashed a furious look at her, and was about to speak, but, catching sight of Sylvia's troubled little face, turned to him anxiously, gave only an impatient shake to his ruddy head, now graying slightly. A little later, he said, Oh, we don't speak the same language any more, Victoria. I couldn't make you understand. You don't know. How should you? You can't conceive how, when one is really living, nothing of all that matters. What does architecture matter, for instance? Some of it matters very little, indeed, concurred his sister blandly. This stirred him to an ungracious laugh. As for keeping up only human ties, isn't a fortnight once every five years rather slim rations? Ah, there are difficulties. The Masonic building, murmured Aunt Victoria, apparently at random. But then it seemed to Sylvia that they were always speaking at random. For all she could see, neither one of them ever answered what the other had said. The best times were when she and Aunt Victoria were all alone together or with only the silent, swift-fingered Pauline in attendance during the wonderful processes of dressing or undressing her mistress. These occasions seemed to please Aunt Victoria best also. She showed herself then so winning and gracious and altogether magical to the little girl that Sylvia forgot the uncomfortableness which always happened when her aunt and her father were together. As they came to be on more intimate terms, Sylvia was told a great many details about Aunt Victoria's present and past life, in the form of stories, especially about that early part of it which had been spent with her brother. Mrs. Marshall Smith took pains to talk to Sylvia about her father, as he had been when he was a brilliant, dashing youth in Paris at school, or as the acknowledged social leader of his class in the famous Eastern College. You see, Sylvia, she explained, having no father or mother or any near relatives, we saw more of each other than a good many brothers and sisters do. We had nobody else, 
except old cousin Ellen, who kept house for us in the summers in Lydford and traveled around with us. Lydford was another topic on which, although it was already very familiar to her from her mother's reminiscences of her childhood in Vermont, Aunt Victoria shed much light for Sylvia. Aunt Victoria's Lydford was so different from Mother's, it seemed scarcely possible they could be the same place. Mother's talk was all about the mountains, the sunny upland pastures, rocky and steep, such a contrast to the rich, level stretches of country around La Chance, above the excursions through these slopes of the mountains every afternoon, accompanied by a marvelously intelligent collie-dog who helped find the cows about the orchard full of old trees more climbable than any others which have grown since the world began about the attic full of drying popcorn and old hair trunks and dusty files of the new york tribune about the pantry with its cookie jar and the back room with its churn and cheese press none of all this existed at the lidford of which aunt victoria spoke although some of her recollections were also of childhood hours once Sylvia asked her, "'But if you were a little girl there, and mother was too, then you and father and she must have played together sometimes.' Aunt Victoria had replied with decision, "'No, I never saw your mother, and neither did your father, until a few months before they were married.' "'Well, wasn't that queer?' exclaimed Sylvia. "'She always lived in Lidford except when she went away to college.' Aunt Victoria seemed to hesitate for words, something unusual with her, and finally brought out, "'Your mother lived on a farm, and we lived in our summer house in the village,' she added after a moment's deliberation. "'Her uncle, who kept the farm, furnished us with our butter. Sometimes your mother used to deliver it at the kitchen door.' She looked hard at Sylvia as she spoke. "'Well, I should have thought you'd have seen her there,' said Sylvia." in surprise. Nothing came to the marshal's kitchen door which was not in the children's field of consciousness. "'It was, in fact, there that your father met her,' stated Aunt Victoria, briefly. "'Oh, yes, I remember,' said Sylvia, quoting fluently from an often-heard tale. "'I've heard them tell about it lots of times. She was earning money to pay for her last year in college, and dropped a history book out of her basket as she started to get back in the wagon, and father picked it up and said, "'Why, good Lord, who in Lidford reads Gibbon?' And mother said it was hers, and they talked a while, and then he got in and rode off with her. "'Yes,' said Aunt Victoria. "'That was how it happened.' Pauline, get out the massage cream and do my face, will you? She did not talk any more for a time, but when she began, it was again of Lidford that she spoke, running along in a murmured stream of reminiscences breathed faintly between motionless lips that Pauline's reverent ministrations might not be disturbed. Through the veil of these half-understood recollections, Sylvia saw highly inaccurate pictures of great magnificent rooms filled with heavy old mahogany furniture of riotously colored rose gardens terraced and box-edged inhabited by beautiful ladies always like aunt victoria dressed up who took tea under brightly striped pagoda-shaped tents waited upon by slant-eyed japanese it seemed aunt victoria had nothing but japanese servants 
the whole picture shimmered in the confused imagination of the listening little girl till it blended indistinguishably with the enchantment of her fairy stories it all seemed a background natural enough for aunt victoria but sylvia could not fit her father into it ah he's changed greatly he is transformed he is not the same creature aunt victoria told her gravely speaking according to her seductive habit with sylvia as though to an equal the year when we lost our money and he married altered all the world for us she linked the two events together and was rewarded by seeing the reference slide over sylvia's head did you lose your money too asked sylvia astounded it had never occurred to her that aunt victoria might have been affected by that event in her father's life with which she was quite familiar through his careless references to what he seemed to regard as an interesting but negligible incident all but the slightest portion of it my dear when i was twenty years old your father was twenty-five sylvia looked about her at the cut glass and silver utensils on the lace-covered dressing-table as aunt victoria's pale lilac crepe de chine negligee at the neat pretty young maid deft-handedly rubbing the perfumed cream into the other woman's well-preserved face impassive as an idol's why why i thought she began and stopped a native delicacy making her hesitate as judith never did aunt victoria understood mr smith had money she explained briefly i married when i was twenty-one oh said sylvia it seemed an easy way out of difficulties she had never before chanced to hear aunt victoria mention her long-dead husband End of chapter four